How are most creators with degrees in creative fields, especially high art, living today? What are some of the unexpected ways they're navigating the world of uncertain arts funding, dwindling local art scenes, and the attention economy? And what might we learn from them? My name is Emma Katrovis, I'm an opera singer turned experimental performer, and I decided to find out, one artist at a time. Each creator I interview is an answer to how to live as an artist today, and there are as many answers as there are artists. If you like the idea behind this podcast, consider subscribing to the newsletter sent out on the 13th of every month. You can find all the relevant links in the description. Here's to being on the verge. And the fish were frightened. So beautiful. Millennial angst is both very overrated and very real. I realized how real it was when I interviewed Cassandra Kazor, the first composer whose works I premiered as a young singer back in undergrad at Western Michigan University when we were both in our early 20s. Cassandra seemed back then just as contrary and confident as her music. The music I knew about, that is. I didn't know back then that Cassandra's real desire was to make a living performing pop music. It's been almost a decade now since I sang her academically angular compositions, and Cassandra has since made her career, and a good living, playing pop music at Chicago bars, taking song requests in a broad variety of genres from rowdy audiences, and setting off to perform on the occasional cruise ship. Performers like Cassandra suffered a lot during this pandemic, but Cassandra herself didn't lose a beat and started performing weekly live streams, interviewing other songwriters, and writing about her experiences as a freelance musician. Cassandra and I talk about millennial angst, our generation's relationship to technology, our fraught experiences with music education, the greed of American colleges, standing up for yourself as a freelance musician, and the coolness of nuns, among other things. One of my earliest childhood memories was visiting my maternal grandmother. She had this old beat up upright piano and I was just completely enthralled by it. I always wanted to play it and um, I guess I had such um, an attraction to it. By the time I was six, my parents decided I could start lessons. Um, my dad was a professional musician until I was born. Unfortunately for him, I ended up doing what he did, which is bar work. They had hoped I would do like the full-on classical thing forever, which I obviously love and studied extensively, but, you know, followed in those footsteps eventually. I got very serious in high school, like started practicing closer to four hours a day and started to do competitions and stuff while privately on the side, especially when my par parents weren't around teaching myself pop music and doing some songwriting and early composition stuff too. Who are your first composition teachers? Self-taught, I wanted to take more composition lessons, but my piano teacher as a child was very traditional. She's out of Eastman. There's like a school of thought with like kind of maybe more of like the old school conservatory types that like the composer is above the performer and like we don't compose because only composers compose. So I think she had a little bit of that. But one of her other students in our piano studio was a bit older and he was an undergrad. She put me in touch with him to mentor me for my first like big composition. And that was at what age about? 
I started 15 or 16. I wrote my high school senior musical. You wrote the musical for your high school at the senior year? (laughs) And I directed it and and played in the pit and stuff. So I'll preface this by saying I went to all girls Catholic school because I was a bad kid and they were like, the only place (laughs) that would take me because, you know, they were like, well, I guess we'll take her. And um, I ended up writing it about, well, there are, there are a couple of main characters, but it focuses on a young girl who realizes she's a lesbian and then tries to come out to her conservative parents, and that goes super poorly. A secondary protagonist is also another young woman who is in um, a physically and emotionally abusive relationship and has a hard time leaving. And it's kind of how their friends kind of become their new family as their families and their loved ones kind of push them away or ostracize them. It was Mm -hmm. called Deadlines because everybody worked at the school paper was the concept. Ah, that's actually, that's a cool title. Thank you. What do you think attracted you to the subject at that age? I was familiar with what abuse looked like. I was also, um, I came out in high school as bisexual and it didn't go well. And so especially, you know, Catholicism at that time was more conservative than it is now. And now it's still very conservative. So that was very much on my heart. And it was funny, too, because I felt empowered to kind of talk about some of this stuff. Even going to Catholic high school, my high school was so liberal. Yeah, it sounds like it. (laughs) It blew my mind. Um, We were the only Catholic school within a certain radius to do Day of Silence. My theology teacher was a lesbian, like an oblate because she couldn't be a nun because she was a lesbian. And actually, there was a family at the school I dated their daughter and they didn't like that. And so they tried to get me suspended. So the suspension did not happen because it was not whatever they said I did didn't happen. But what the school did to placate the family was take away my rehearsal space and time and a blank check or not a blank check. I'm sorry. It didn't have somebody's name at the top. It just said Mm -hmm. from the nuns who lived in the convent next door actually funded the last part of the rehearsal space needs and everything. Oh, wow. So the nuns were like down with the subject matter. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those are some badass nuns. Mm-hmm. So speaking of being a bad kid, Cassandra admitted to me that recordings of parts of her high school musical were available online in, and here I'm quoting her, all of their high school glory. So naturally, I couldn't resist looking them up. There was a, a story that circulated. There was a, a priest who would come often to do our Friday services, masses, and um, he was pretty like openly sexist. And there was a rumor that went around that he went to lunch with the nuns at the convent next door, and most of them had doctorates. And he made some offhand comment uh, regarding women not needing that much education. And the rumor is the nuns just like up and marched him off campus and called him a cab, and we we're like. So, and he never did mass again. No, he never came. He never came. (laughs) They ran him off. That's (laughs) probably. (laughs) Well, that's the nunhood working the way it should. I feel like. (laughs) Like... Yes. Yeah, I had lots of admiration for them. So, what made you decide to go to Western after that? Yeah. So, uh, again, my childhood piano teacher, feeling kind of ill-equipped to help me with the composition side of things, referred me to a mm-hmm. couple schools where they, where I could do like a double major, where 
if I went to a conservatory, I would like have to pick one. That was the sense that she gave me. So I, I checked out Western and Dr. Zagree gave me a good sell on why I should come there. Uh, my audition, he had me play piano and then he had me play something from my musical and then he had me show an art music composition and then he had me sing and then he was like, I can help you with all these things. And I thought, I want to do all those things. We did spend lessons sometimes talking about composition and improvisation and songwriting, as well as the classical stuff. The state school formula is to wait two years before going into the private composition lessons. I eventually somehow, again, I was a bad kid, I still am, managed to twist somebody's arm into letting me start private comp my sophomore year instead of my junior year. But yeah, I got to uh, kind of go at music from all those different <laughs> angles with doctor's degree. I got the new music bug maybe a semester into freshman year and ended up playing with Birds on a Wire, which was a whole other level of music that I had never even known about until that time. And spent a lot of time practicing that music because it was very difficult. Because it was mostly upperclassmen and faculty when that started. And I just said, I, I need to play in this group. Again, I was a bad kid. I was like, I just kind of forced my way. <laughs> As I was like, hey, let me in. Let me in until people got so fed up that they let me play in the group. What was your kind of your, your gateway piece to new music? I love this question. It was Zaka <laughs> by Jennifer Higdon. Zaka, the exact definition, I, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like to throw, kick, punch, run. It's like 10 different things, this crazy word. And it involved palm muting of the piano strings and, and swiping them on the inside and plucking. And then all the other instruments did crazy stuff as well. And I just thought those were some of the coolest sounds I had ever encountered. And I want to play that piece. I got together with my best friend last night, brilliant violist and, and artist, and he premiered everything I wrote for viola from the time I was like 15. So we have that friendship and then the art relationship. And we think a lot about the institution of, of classical music and art music. And then what kind of is, is the medium of now? Like what is the, the urgency of music and art now? And uh, like, for example, today he's in a, a, like a reading session with like Muti. Wait, you mean like the Muti? The Muti. And so, you know, he got this lengthy email of like protocol of how to speak and how to present and how it, and got admonished for wearing a sock that had like a red stripe on it. And um, so there's that. And, and then there's what is popular now in terms of art is this really fast paced outputting of uh, your TikTok videos for comedy and music and art and anything like that. Or, or again, like the YouTubers and stuff, and especially with the pandemic, with everything becoming virtual, that's a pretty big gap between the orchestra playing all of the Beethoven symphonies and mm. what is actually like a huge cash cow and maybe where we're going with art and art production. And where does the millennial fit into that? Because on one hand, I have all this arts education and I can write music out by hand and I can engrave and I can orchestrate. But... I don't feel a big burning need for that at the emerging to mid-level composer. And then I can also do a little bit of video editing and sound mixing and production stuff. I'm very comfortable on Pro Tools and Final Cut and all that stuff. But it still doesn't feel like it can keep up with what is popular in terms of kind of what Gen Z is putting out too. So I feel like super stuck in many ways, kind of in between these two forces 
you're saying that composers that are late teens, early 20s right now, they're not they're not exactly have it getting the same education as you are getting as a composer? Is that what you're saying? It might be better, actually. No, but what I'm saying is it's changed. I finished my master's in 2017 and I struggled with my electronic music courses. And that just might be me not having quite the math brain for something like Max MSP and the curriculum because the curriculum is going to reflect the market. So there's less of a market now for huge orchestral works, A, because they take forever, and B, because they can't get the same amount of performance time as, say, a chamber piece could get, or a performance for fixed media where you can go to a thousand festivals and press play. So I'm curious to see how curriculum will be changing as it reflects the market and what people are curious about. A lot of people are going to pick like a weird multimedia concert at the Museum of Contemporary Art over, again, hearing some Beethoven symphonies too. The technological difference in our generations is, is stark, you know? Young people probably feel a lot of pressure to be online, be creating content. I know a bunch of my piano students, when I'm like, what do you want to be when you grow up? They're like influencers. Oh, God. So, <laughs> but, more power to you if you can do it. But. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's true that that like almost decade ago, social media probably didn't play the same role in our lives as it does for 22 year olds today. That It's almost like the technology grew up at a similar pace that we grew up. Because like when we were like kids, I, I mean, at least I remember my father, you know, that sound of the internet. But, you know, I remember that. And I remember like only the parents or only one parent even had like real access to the internet, you know, and then like, through our teens quickly, very quickly, social media takes off. And then it becomes this incredible force in our 20s sometime. It's tracing the path of our own, (laughs) of our own maturity in some ways, our own aging. Oh yeah, I can see that. Sorry, your face is I sometimes just like comment on celebrity posts because I (laughs) think nobody's gonna read it. Uh Uh-huh. And I just- Yeah, I do that too. Because like nobody ever, even no, likes no one ever I reads com- it. No, and I, com- I commented on a, one of Candace Owens' posts where she mm-hmm. said all of Cardi B's fans were uneducated and stupid, and I made a comment. I basically said I have a master's and I like Cardi B, and then I got like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of likes, but then also like hundreds of people like saying really horrible things about and to me, like it really struck a nerve apparently. And so I was like, I, I took the thing down and I like went away from Twitter for a while. Cause I was like, I, 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 I thought the part of the Twitter blow off, blowing off steam is to go comment on celebrities posts. So lesson learned. Yep. That was not a good call. Well, you should focus on the likes though. <laughs> it's just, uh, I, I don't have very thick skin, I guess. I thought I did. But I mean, I've encountered that I have a couple friends who are a little more high profile who like deal with this stuff routinely, like really hateful DMs and comments and stuff. Uh, I'm always like, wow, like you're so tough and so smart. And then, yeah, one day of it for me. And I was like, well, somebody um, told me they wanted me to die. Uh, so I'm just going to delete all this. <laughs> it was it was a it was a waste of my time. I shouldn't have done it. <laughs> you had every right to comment. It's funny because it's it, you never know what where you're going to end up on the internet because sometimes like you you never know what crowd you're in. It's kind of like you can't really read a room. So sometimes you'll say something, 
And that's actually pretty controversial and no one will find, you know, no one will find it offensive because you're in the right like room. <laughs> but then other times you'll say something and it'll totally floor you that you're, oh, I didn't know I was in this room right now. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know that these people are going to be reading it because I can totally I can totally see that comment um, as, as getting nothing but love in other other parts of Twitter. There's a you know, there's a lot of music Twitter right now, it seems to me, or just music Internet that's like totally on board with this whole like, you know, we need to expand our understanding of what music is and what good and bad music is and what and and stop obsessing over complexity as a, as a sign of, you know, how good something is, for example. Stop thinking that enjoyment is a bad thing um, or suspect in some way. <laughs> yeah, I could totally imagine. It's weird because I could totally imagine you saying this and getting nothing but love for it, honestly, in a different part of Twitter. A lot of the art that I've been making lately, there's no theory behind it. I've been writing mostly songs. I sit down with a timer for 45 minutes and I write a song. I'm like, well, that's what that song is. Now I have a song. Instead of just, because they're in, within songwriting too, there are schools of thought that everything must be analyzed. Like harmonically, you mean? Harmonically, lyrically. Um, that's a big Nashville thing. Kind of the, the pop country radio stuff is all just... Everything has to be perfectly in its right place. And I kind of reject that. But surely I feel like because you studied harmony, there, there are things that you've kind of internalized that are probably automatic to you. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. It's the whole thing where like you need to be pretty intimate with an art form in order to change it, in order to push the boundaries. You have to know where they are. Yes, I see that argument. And that's definitely kind of one side of the coin from which great art flows, right? You have the tools, you can use the ones, you don't have to use all the tools in your toolbox. And then again, the breaking of the rules, that's a, a great way to make cool stuff. There's also, I've been more and more interested in kind of like subcultures too, because when you create a culture that goes, you have to know the rules to break them. You have to have these skills or whatever you touch can't be justified and therefore it's not legitimate. You create an othering of people who either don't have access to that or maybe don't have interest in specifically parts of that. Um, so then you get these really cool subcultures. You get punk, you get rap, you get screamo, you get noise music, you get, you know, um, you get Sonic Youth, you get, <laughs> you get Guns N' Roses, you get Kendrick Lamar, who then goes on to win a Pulitzer. And I think that there should be space to go, okay, you, you didn't learn the rules, yet this is, this is your artistic inclination. Uh, now I want your perspective on this too, because I remember I had a summer in... Um, in Europe, I did a few weeks in Paris and then a few in Bruges. To I followed this teacher and studied with him there. And uh, it wasn't Paris proper, it was Cologne, like right outside. And the space that was used for the summer camp for the piano students was actually a conservatory for children. And I remember walking into my first lesson and my teacher pointed at a poster and he was like, did you, it, this was after my freshman year, he said, this was your freshman theory curriculum, right? Kind of basic oral skills and things like that. And I said, yes. He says, this is what six-year-olds start with here. Just to kind of put it in perspective for me, how far behind I was and actually talk to my parents when I was like 
19 or 20 and told them I was past my prime and that I should quit music, which I didn't. And now I make a great living doing it. Um, and so I think, again, like that's why I want your perspective too, because I do think that is a very, maybe, please correct me if I'm out of line here, but maybe, maybe a more European school of thought is you start music very seriously, very, very young. You can go to conservatory very, very young. And then in the US, I feel like music is, you know, art music, classical music is treated like a hobby or you get the private lessons and then you kind of start when you're 18. But I remember feeling, one, betrayed by American music education by going, what? Six-year-olds do this and this is what I did in freshman theory. But then I also remembered feeling kind of hurt and then moved to rebellion as well, where I thought, oh, you can't tell me what I can and can't do with my life. And then I went back to Western, doubled down on my practicing, worked harder than ever, and then went on to have a great career in pop performance, actually. So I don't know. What, what's, your, what's your takeaway on all of that? Or how does that make you feel? I don't know. Um, I think France is particularly elitist, like particularly within, within Europe. Um, it's true that like here, most people get their early education in these public after school schools that are specifically for like arts related stuff. I auditioned for one of those and I when I was a child um, and I did not get in because I didn't sing. I, I, I sang jazz. I sang Fascinating Rhythm by Gershwin. And the woman who was who was there just thought it was pop music. Like that's how far behind we were like Gershwin. Gershwin, like, like opera singers in America sing that like on their recitals. So I that was a very early, you know, experience of mine where I was kind of denied a music education that I would have wanted because of that. So because of that, the first rigorous education, really rigorous education in music that I had was at, in college in the United States. Now, the interesting thing is, that when I came back to Prague, to the academy, so that's like post, you know, elementary school music, post conservatory, right? Because they have high school level conservatory here. And, okay. and like, I was actually musically better prepared or just kind of better off in some way than, than, than most of the, the singers there. Singers I'm talking about, but I definitely never felt, I never, ever, ever felt that I was behind in any way in those four or five years that I spent at Western. It was so intense and, and I was exposed to so much different kinds of music that, that, I, that it was really, it just totally made up um, for everything else. Maybe not totally for everything else, but like in the ways that matter, I would say yes. And that was very surprising to me. Well, and I guess to kind of bring it back to kind of our time working together, mm -hmm. um, you are one of two singers that I kind of let anywhere near my music that had vocal parts. And it was because mm -hmm. you had such a, well, you have such an incredible voice, first of all, that has this beautiful color. Yeah. That I haven't heard with anybody else. And then, mm -hmm. yeah, you just, you, you just got things in a, <laughs> and my music is super rhythmic too. So mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. Rhythm is Rhythm is number one for me. Melody. Mm -hmm. eh. mm -hmm. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. Well, you treated the voice like part of the 
like an instrument and a lot of actually compose young composers do honestly like <laughs> that was my experience that it's like you look at it and it's like this is not like anything else I've done because I'm being treated like I don't know like I'm just part of you know I'm part of the band whatever um and that and I have mm -hmm. to say that was a huge like that was also part of my education like doing your music was part of my education that kind of curiosity and working with young composers it, it there is not as much of it at least in the Czech Republic now that you know you were in France and France does kind of have the best of everything because they also, they do have, they have both like lots of cutting edge stuff and they have really rigorous education from um, a young age, it seems to me. So they're just, they're just fancy, you know, compared to what we have, <laughs> what we have over here in Eastern Europe. But, you know, what are you going to do? They're French. They're like, they're all like a bunch of little aristocrats, honestly, when you go there. I don't want to <laughs> comment on that. I'm just going to make this face at you. <laughs> So yeah, it's, I mean, music education is a very, I guess, I guess for both of us then, um, I never thought of, because I always thought of you as someone, you know, because you had piano lessons from a young age, I was like, wow, she's a real musician, you know, and I always thought of myself as a bit of a, of an imposter, um, because I wasn't really afforded that from, from a young age, I didn't, I didn't really get to, to do much of that. But I guess, I guess singing in choirs when I was very, very little and, and, you know, I did some actually classical guitar, I guess that kind of, kind of kept, like kept me at least intact until <laughs> musically until I was, you know, until I could really get into it in college. But I yeah. think in the absence of education, if there's enough curiosity somewhere, I do believe somebody can excel. Maybe you feel this way as well, but I don't know that I'd be feeling as nervous about my age, for example, if I were living in the United States, because there is this idea here, you know, that you just have to be nurtured in something from a very young age and you have to bloom early. Shockingly, like I, I have a, a friend whose parents were visual artists and they forbid him from doing visual art because they felt like it was like bad um, because it was such an unstable career or something like that. You know, there's also musicians who do this to their kids and it's really sad. So he actually went into music instead, <laughs> which is funny. And, you know, he maybe would be, you know, personality wise, more suited to actually being a visual artist, you know, someone who whittles away, you know, he makes viola da gambas as well because um, he's a, a viola da gamba player, but he also makes them. And he's really like, he, he seems to really be suited to that sort of whittling away at something at home, more so than to the life of like a, a performer. And, um, and he shockingly says that like, he couldn't go into visual art now because he has not learned from a very young age to do like the perfect like figural drawing. And that if you don't learn that by a certain age, you don't have that skill. And, you know, I thought that was only a thing with like music. But this might be really a cultural thing in Europe um, because because mm. we do still have more of a connection to like that old tradition. Yeah. And I'm yeah, I'm sure there are equivalents in a lot of people's minds with music with that as, as well. Like if you're not running scales at 160 BPM, four octaves by the time you're eight, you'll never go to music school. So I, I've recently rediscovered that I love to write prose. So I'm in the middle of writing my second novel and I've noticed as I go on the hundreds of thousands of words that my writing is improving, like objectively improving. And that's because I carve out several hours of every day to write because there's just this love there and then this fascination there now with words all of a sudden. Is it like at, at a point where you can talk about 
what it's about, the content of the novel or? It's, it's fiction. This mm -hmm. is for you, fiction. Um, Cassandra is doing air quotes just so everyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, it's kind of, a the story of this, this young bass player who, um, tours with a cover band and, um, she's kind of the, the newest person, the youngest person in the band. And it's just the, her experience of working in clubs, traveling for a living and what that kind of does to her emotionally and psychologically. And it's just trying to shine a light on what it feels like to work in entertainment, mm -hmm. which is something that I wish I'm hoping to start a conversation about like health and equality and wellness mm -hmm. within entertainment, because it is still very, very sexist and very abusive, mm -hmm. uh, in particular towards women and LGBTQ mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. in my experience. So that's the first one is called industry. And then now I'm writing a kind of a romance tragedy, which is kind of a left turn from that. It's proving much harder. <laughs> mm -hmm. The whole thing with the industry and what it's actually like for, for, for artists within it is like is a huge one because it's not talked about in a way because we're the storytellers. It's harder for us to tell the story, you know, to kind of to, to, to turn the eyeball back at like the, you know, the arts industry, whichever, whichever one we're in. And I'm, I personally fascinated with telling the, the, the story from a performer's point of view, right? The person who is being looked at. That to me is really, really fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. And this, this touches on a lot of that too. I think there's also, you know, we have uh, in particular in the popular music industry, we have the movie, you know, we've got the Johnny Cash movie, Walk the Line. I'm reading Guns N' Roses biography right now. You know, we have the media where it does get into like the dirty nitty gritty parts, but there's always like a redemption because it's, but it's Johnny Cash and everything was okay. And he got help and now we have his music and how awesome is that? Instead of going, there are tons of musicians who exactly. don't get that break, who don't get the redemption, mm -hmm. who don't get the rehab or the support, who end up having a lot of like issues long-term. And uh, kind of that's the story I want to, focus on I don't want like a, a redemption story yeah that's interesting I've been I've been thinking about the the same things um that this we only ever tell the stories of the famous ones and they're troubled fine but there's they at least get the compensation of being appreciated in some way <laughs> whereas the great majority never even gets that you know yes. there it's like the it's this kind of invisibility incredible or at least it did up until recently incredibly high concentration of female entertainers and we all kind of over the couple of years got to know each other and we formed this kind of private group not like a facebook group but like mental group where we would kind of share secrets about people who weren't treating other people well and we would just go oh, i wouldn't take that gig with that person or i wouldn't work for that asian he's not reputable or he won't hear you out if you have any problems and things just because there is a high demand for female entertainers, I did start to feel a little bit of a shift in terms of work safety because, again, of the demand for female entertainers. And if everybody just went no, no, no to working with somebody, you get put with a better person eventually. I actually had the audacity at some point to, when working with a new agent, you know, he wanted to do my first gig for his company with me to watch because uh, as I have with almost every job I've ever gotten I come through word of mouth I don't know what was going on with me at that time but I was just like hot and I pretty much said to this guy who's gonna cut me a pretty big check at the end of the night I was like this is what I put up with this is what I don't put up with 
if you want to work with me, this is how you'll treat me like really aggressive for me <laughs> even. And he just looked at me, he was like, okay. And it was great. And I know a lot of women who've worked for him who have not had a good experience. So I think part of the evolution for me is just to say it. And if that person comes back around and calls you a diva or a any other unpleasant word to describe a woman, then I'm just, I'm too good. I can work with anybody. So that's been empowering for me too, to, to feel like I have the skill set to be selective and to set my boundaries. I feel like fear is, is the worst place you can come from. Fear is so empowering to people who use it, right? As a tactic. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Against you. Yeah. So this is my ninth year of working in the pop entertainment industry. And I would say only around year seven did I start to feel like I could say what I needed to say and negotiate the way that I wanted to. Because I have got, you know, earlier in my career, I did get gigs pulled from me for saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing in somebody else's eyes. And it was devastating, especially when you love something, you want to do something, you just want to show up and, and, and do the art or do the project or whatever. But I think, I think that the type of person who would fire somebody from a job for standing up for herself is the type of person who is counting on her to be afraid. Just like this particular conversation I had with that particular booker, I think if that's the type of person who's counting on me to be afraid and I go, I'm not, and here's what I stand up for, they actually go, oh, well then I guess that's, that's where you're coming from. On the flip side, if they're not willing to relent and meet you where you're at, do you want to work with that person? Really? Even if it is like your, your biggest hero or, or this, I don't think I would at this point. Yeah, it, it depends on where you are, because I think even, you know, even in the beginning, I think that there still was a demand for what you're doing. Whereas like in the classical singing uh, world right now, we have a huge crisis of too many sopranos and too many mezzos, but too many sopranos oh. especially. And to the point where really, really like, the great majority of people exiting, um, and really not just in the United States, especially in the United States, but not just their college, just really are, have kind of like n- don't have a chance even before they even could get one, you know, like uh, to the point where I could totally see, I mean, I've, I've been there, you know, uh, that you'll just put up with anything, honestly. You'll put up with anything because you just don't have any kind of like bargaining power because you're actually don't don't have a lot of worth, frankly. I mean, in in the eyes of like the industry, you don't have a lot of worth as a young soprano. Um, We're kind of like in that position. And I can imagine lots of other fields where, you know, if it's really, really competitive, that's where it's going to hurt. And I thought about this, too, a little bit, not as much as Mm -hmm. you, I'm sure. Do you feel like there is accountability to be placed on institutions of higher learning for the amount of vocal students that they take? There is no accountability on that end. There's maybe some accountability for like post-college, like, you know, some some of these more kind of grifty organizations and grifty educational opportunities or pay to sings. But there is no like mm. a- accountability on the college level to say, okay, we cannot do this to young people. I'd rather be told at 18, no, you can't study singing. You'll have, If you want to do music, you'll have to get some kind of other skill set within music that's more marketable. But there is just you know, you, you can't just do singing. I think a young person who's 16, 17, 18 at that age is going to be much better equipped to deal with that than someone at 29 because they're just postponing it to like your late 20s and early 30s where everyone's like, oh, sorry, you've passed 30, you're too old now. 
and you don't you can't apply even for certain high-end competitions and you can't apply to um, opera studios anymore um, at the same time i would say that you know opera companies shouldn't be held responsible for the greed, frankly, of American colleges, because American colleges have realized that singers are cash cows. You know, they're easy. You can come by them fairly easily. So it's just it's just one of those situations where Mm -hmm. I I think that they're uncomfortable with the idea of turning uh, young, you know, sopranos, mezzos away. But I think that it's actually an opportunity to say, hey, you know, you can be a leader in music. You can be a you know, something else in music, but you have to start young, you know, and you can't wait until they're 29 to finally break it to them and and have some agent who then everyone says is mean that he's telling them that, but it's actually not that agent's fault, right? It's the fault of the colleges. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, that's the camp that I've decided to sit in recently too, because I think again about my, myself. So first of all, singers, again, I feel like they're just like, oh, money, money, money. Sure. You can study, come study, come study. And I just think that's abs- that's so wrong. I've thought about that with kind of piano as well, because again, I think saying to somebody at a younger age, why don't you try something else within this thing that you love is mm-hmm. super productive. And at the end of the day, again, if there's enough love and enough curiosity, like, no, I really, mm-hmm. really want to do this. Okay, you're going to have to go study education. Okay, but I love playing piano. You're going to spend every free minute of your time. If you really love something, doing that. And that's what happened for me with pop music too. Any amount of money says I wouldn't have got into like Berkeley to study pop, but all I did in my free time, even as busy as I was undergrad moving forward into adulthood, was just practice pop music and listen to pop music and work on pop music and go into clubs and be awful at pop music and then get a little better at pop music. And (laughs) so I think, I think, you know, the pragmatic approach is good. And if there's again, enough love there, you can do Mm -hmm. still anything that you want to do. If you can't get a job within that field that you wanted to be in, then you have all this debt and you you have no way to alleviate it. And then you're just stuck and, and you're stuck waiting tables anyway or doing whatever you need to do anyway, mm-hmm. teaching, you know, exactly. beginning music lessons mm-hmm. and, and just not doing what you want to do anyway and also having debt. And, and that's yeah. really sad. And before you decide to do that, you are open to all sorts of like exploitation, uh, monetary yes. and otherwise, because you have no bargaining chips, you know. Yep. So I hope that the education system in the United States, you know, catches catches up a little bit. So just talk about your online projects because those often have to do with pop music, right? You're kind of bringing mm-hmm. the bar to the <laughs> to the YouTube and every and Twitch and everywhere. Yeah. Um, so right when the pandemic started, um, you know, there were speculations about, oh, it's just going to be two weeks. And John, my husband, and I looked at each other. We were like that is not possible. And within the first week had tried to put together a kind of rough setup to start streaming because we figured, well, we're in it for the long haul. Let's get our slot. Let's tell our people and have a a regular weekly thing. And for the first couple months, it was really good. And then I think people got screen fatigue. And so it's just been our regular 10, 15 people now every week, but we still do it because it's fun. And we get to play for people who haven't seen us play in years because they live in different parts of the world or different parts of the States. And, um, yeah, it's been fun. It's been a great learning experience and, uh, it's been helping to keep us afloat while clubs stay closed down. Do you have an, a vision for your online presence for the future after the pandemic, or is this just a stopgap? That's a good question. I think I'll continue. We'll continue doing our show together. I stopped my personal live streams because I wasn't writing enough. I wanted to actually spend more time writing. But then I do on Sundays, I do an interview with a songwriter. We talk about songwriting. Mm-hmm. That's and they a play great some... thing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so 
that I'm going to probably keep going for a while because, again, I get to learn a lot and have these types of meaningful art conversations, and that's never a waste of time for me. Um, so that will continue, I think. And then otherwise, it's been a great opportunity to, I finally got over 100 subscribers on my YouTube channel, so I got my own YouTube name. And, you know, I got, I think, 100 more followers on Twitter in the last few months. And that is all aimed at when I released... I just released a single, so when I release the full album, hopefully having a few more eyeballs on what I'm up to so that that will be more successful. So I feel like every moment I spent into working on the technology and building a little bit more of an audience, it's all for the original music career. Walking through the tall grass, touching the blades with my fingertips. The whole songwriting scene in the United States, that's something that I'm not exactly acquaint acquainted with, um, and it seems like a really strong kind of subculture, I would say, in the United States. Would you say so? Yeah, especially, um, you know, d depending on your location, I would say New York City's got the theater thing. Nashville's got the songwriting stuff. LA's got the songwriting production stuff. Chicago doesn't have a great songwriting scene. I've been trying to change that by bringing people together because um, cover music is really the thing here. That's why I've been so successful here because every restaurant and bar wants cover music and live music and it's been actually very easy to make a living here in Chicago, which is awesome. Um, and then your blog uh, is also, you, you write something every day. Is that the case? Various musings? Uh, that's, that's the goal. That's the goal. Okay. Uh, sometimes in I addition don't... to writing your novel, that's Working. ambitious. <laughs> so something, so, yeah, something's got to give some days, like on the days that I teach once in a while, I, I don't get to the blog. The goal of the blog is just to kind of just write on whatever pops into my head that day. And it's just to practice writing because I'd like to be better at writing. So it's not meant to be like a successful blog about, you know, it's just here I am writing an extra 500, 2000 words to continue to sharpen that skill set. Yeah, it's great that you're bringing that musician mindset to writing. Thanks. Yeah, it's been fun. <laughs> Cassandra's single, Animal, which you're listening to right now, along with her other music featured on this episode, is available on Cassandra's website, linked in the description. That warbling little voice with a pretty tone but lacking diction, which you heard a couple times throughout the interview, was Little Wee Me almost a decade ago singing the premiere of one of Cassandra's song cycles. I honestly don't even know who that little singer was, both as an artist and as a person. Now, I wrote the text to a different song in that same song cycle, but the recording of it did not survive the whims of time. So, Cassandra and I may do a long-distance collaboration to record that piece again, for all time's sake. You can follow me on social media or subscribe to the newsletter linked in the description if you want to hear it. For all information on this podcast and the related blog and YouTube channel, visit OnTheVergeTrilogy.com, no W's. Here's to being on the verge!